One of my favourite books is, um, is by George Orwell. It's called Coming Up for Air. And it's a book that I first read when I was studying literature at, at Surrey. And it's a, it's a great novel. It's all about, um, it sort of looks at nostalgia and, and the danger of being nostalgic, the danger of looking back and, and, and you know, looking, at, looking at things through rose-tinted spectacles. And for a long time, I used to go back to this novel every year and read it and reread it. And I haven't done that for about seven or eight years now. And just recently, in the past few weeks, um, I came across a copy of it on my bookshelf and I forgot, well, I hadn't forgotten about it, but I just hadn't picked it up for ages. And I started reading it. And it's been like sitting down with an old friend. Because when we, when we meet an old friend, when we haven't seen them for many, many years, we, we have to kind of get to know them again. There are certain things that we, we know about them. We know the history that they lived up to the point where we last saw them. We might know the job that they do. We might know their qualification. We might know aspects of their personality. We'll certainly know their name. But there'll also be things that we don't know about them. They would have possibly changed jobs. They might have, have, have studied for a new vocation. They might have moved house. And then there are bits about them that we think we know. So, for instance, we might say, how are your children? Thinking little Johnny as a four-year-old little tot and, and little Jane as two years old being carried round. And the answer comes back, oh, well, Johnny's studying for his PhD and, and Jane's, Jane's currently doing a gap year in Australia. And you think, wow, my goodness, I, my recollection, that, that needs updating. That's changed. And what I found when I was reading this book again for the first time in ages is that um, I sort of had that experience. There were sections of the book that I read and I thought, that's very different to how I remember it. There were certain ideas and, and, and experiences that, that are accounted in this, recounted in this book which I, I, I reacted to very differently reading them where I am now in life compared to when I first read them. And that's because I've changed. The words on the page haven't changed, but I've changed. And so I react differently. Scripture is exactly the same. We can become very, very familiar with a passage of Scripture and actually miss bits and forget bits. And as we go through life experiences, we can suddenly go back to a passage of Scripture that we think we know inside out and discover that actually we now have a different relationship with that piece of scripture. Take, for instance, the Exodus. Now, many of us would have been familiar with the Exodus at a very young age. We'll know Moses about the fact that for 400 years the Israelites had been living in Egypt. That at first it was a, it was a a happy place to be, the Egyptians and the Israelites living alongside each other, but as the Israelite tribe grew bigger and bigger, so the Egyptians felt threatened and so oppressed them into slavery. We know that Moses was born, hidden in the basket, sent down the Nile, discovered by Pharaoh's daughter, brought up in a royal palace. We might know that as he grew up, he one day saw a an Egyptian beating 
an Israelite slave. And Moses, in a fit of rage, thought, that's one of my people, and so killed the Egyptian and buried the body and then fled Egypt. And then we'll probably be familiar with the burning bush when Moses was tending sheep out in the wilderness and suddenly saw this bush on fire but not being consumed. There was something very unusual about this. this. We'll be familiar with him approaching the bush and hearing this voice saying, take off your you're on holy ground. Well, have a familiarity with Moses being told to go to Pharaoh, to go and speak to him, and Moses being reluctant, saying, I can't do that. That's not me. Pick someone else. Send someone else. And then eventually, we see Moses growing and growing getting more and more bold as God demonstrates his presence, as God demonstrates the fact that he's in control. And as Moses is more and more obedient to God, so, so the relationship between the two grows. Moses is, becomes happy to, 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 to be obedient to God, even if it looks like it's going gonna, it's gonna to take huge personal risk. He gets to the point where he's prepared to take that risk. Then there are the plagues. Some of the best Sunday school stories involve the plagues. The river Nile flowing with blood. The plague of frogs. The gnats and the flies and the afflicted livestock. The boils and the hail and the locusts and the darkness. They make great stories. You see, all of these things, all of these things were done by God to show Pharaoh and the Egyptians that the God of Israel is God, is Lord of all, is ruler over everything. There is no sorcerer or conjurer or wizard. There is no pagan God who can go toe-to-toe with the God of Israel. And these plagues are God's way of saying, look, I'm going to do this if you, don't, if you don't set my people free. You're not going to do it? Okay. Here's the frogs. Here's the locusts. Look at the river. There's the blood. Look at your livestock. They've suffered. I can do this. And eventually, we see in, in Exodus chapter 10, we see Pharaoh having had enough. I've had enough. I've had nine plagues. My people have suffered. I've suffered. You're making me look like a fool. He summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. So Pharaoh gets to the point where he he acknowledges, he acknowledges the power of the God of Israel. But every time he acknowledges it, it grates. It grates a little bit more. And he can't bring himself to set the people free. We read time and time again that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Which is a challenge. Because we believe in a God of love. 
We believe God, God loves people. God gives us every opportunity to turn to him. So surely hardening Pharaoh's heart He's not giving Pharaoh that option. He's not giving Pharaoh that choice. When Pharaoh says, forgive my sin once more, pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me, surely Pharaoh's getting closer and closer and closer. These days we'd say he's, he's on his journey. He'll get there one day. So why does God keep hardening his heart? We can misunderstand that statement. Let me explain it like this. When I was a teenager, I used to do a lot of running. And there was a kid who ran for Harlow. He was called Martin Webb. Nice guy. Really nice guy. In fact, annoyingly nice. He was a good runner. He was a very good footballer. All the girls seemed to fancy him. He couldn't do enough for anyone. He was annoyingly, almost creepishly nice. And I didn't like him. Because whenever we lined up on the start line, and you'd be standing there thinking, right, okay, as soon as that gun goes, I'm going, I want to get to the front, I want to hold my position, I want to make sure that I I open a gap. He'd be standing there, hey Tom, how you doing? I haven't seen you. You just think, we've got a five mile cross country race about to start. Come on, let's get our, get our minds in. No, hang on, how are you mate? I haven't seen you for ages. You weren't at the, the race last week. What's, you know, they just want to chat and catch up. And then, and during the race, if, if, you, if you got to a tight corner, he'd slow down and let you go. You think, don't let me through. Let's both go together. And whoever, whoever's got the sharpest elbows, they'll be the first one through. Don't be so nice. You see, my heart was hardened against that guy. He didn't harden it. He hardened it through his actions. He hardened it by being so nice, such a lovely person. I wish I still knew him now. He's probably a lovely guy. I'd probably get on really well with him. I allowed my heart to be hardened because I was slightly jealous of the fact that he seems to be better at everything, just seems to be nicer, a better person. Pharaoh has his heart hardened, not because God doesn't love him, not because God doesn't want him, but Pharaoh cannot bring himself to have anything other than a hard heart. He might get to the point where, where he, he looks at his country and he thinks, I need, I need this plague gone. Moses, you're the one that brought this on. Your God did this. Tell him to get rid of it. Please forgive me for whatever I've done, whatever it takes. Make this go away. But I am so annoyed that this God, he does what he says he's going to do. His people are irritating. His people annoy me, but they're my slaves. I'd love to get rid of them, but, but they're my slaves. I'll lose face. So what do I do? I'll lose face if I get rid of them, but I'm losing credibility by keeping them. I can't stand them and their God. I hate them and their God. You see how his heart is hardened. God doesn't harden his heart because God doesn't like him. God hardens his heart because Pharaoh doesn't like God. So we get to this point in chapter 11, Exodus chapter 11, where we we begin to read the next chapter of this very, very familiar story. 
This is the point where Moses is before Pharaoh for the very last time. And we read, the Lord said to Moses, I'll bring one more plague on Pharaoh and Egypt. After that, he'll let you go from here. And when he does, he'll drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. Now, let's just pause there. These people are slaves. These people are slaves. What a, what a strange, what a strange instruction. Go to your slave masters. Go to the people who, who own you, the people who oppress you, the people who, who beat you if you put a foot, a foot out of line, the people who control your food and your housing, and ask them for gold and silver. That is a very, very odd instruction. In verse 4, we read, Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her hand mill and all the firstborn cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. But... Among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Look at the change in Moses. He's gone from this, this tired, uh, this, this timid, um, uh, very fearful individual who says, Lord, I, I can't do this. Don't call me. Send someone else. To suddenly standing in front of Pharaoh saying, your firstborn and all the firstborn of your people will die. The Lord will move through you. He gets himself worked up that we're told that when he leaves Pharaoh, he is hot with anger. God's given Moses the confidence and the power, the authority to go toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. This is Pharaoh who, at the start of the story, thinks that he has the power and the authority to go toe-to-toe with God. But of course Pharaoh doesn't listen. Moses knew that. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. God had it all planned. He knew how Pharaoh was going to react. He knew what was going to be needed to be done. We then read through chapter 12 the instructions given, very strict instructions. And sometimes they seem slightly odd, but we've got to remember that the key ingredient throughout this chapter is obedience. 
God wants his people to be obedient to him. Moses has been obedient to God to get them this far. And God says, right, Moses, you've shown me personal obedience, but now I need corporate obedience. I need obedience from my people. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. This is a fresh start. This is, a fr- this is when it happens. You've been in slavery for 430 years. This is a fresh start. Tell the whole community of Israel. This is a corporate commandment. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour having taken into account the number of people who are there. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Again, a corporate instruction. My people must be obedient and follow these steps together. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat raw, sorry, do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire. These are very specific instructions. This wasn't the the normal way that meat was prepared or cooked. The blood wouldn't have been collected normally. It would have been disposed of. Blood was unclean. They certainly weren't in the habit of keeping the blood and, and, and dipping hyssop in it and painting their door frames with it. You can always imagine Moses saying, look, look, here's your doorway. Paint, paint these bits and these bits, these are the posts, this bit up here, make it obvious. Be generous with it, lash it on, because when the Spirit of God passes through, he needs to be able to see this. Don't boil the meat, roast it. Cook it properly. Don't leave any of it till morning. If some is left over, you must burn it. This is how you're to eat it. Don't take your shoes off and make yourself comfortable. Don't take time laying the table. Instead, eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt. Your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. In other words, eat it as if at any second during that meal someone's going to walk in and shout, Go, go, go! Eat it so that your cloak isn't going to inhibit your legs as you try and escape from the house. So you don't have to look around for your sandals and desperately try and remember where you put them and why is the right one not with the left one. Have them on your feet. Have your staff with you. Don't leave it by the door. Don't tuck it under the table. Lean it against you. Have it there. Eat it in haste. 
It is the Lord's Passover. Sometimes we can imagine some of these great feasts, and the Bible's full of great feasts where, where time was taken. The Passover isn't one of them. The Passover is, is, a, is a rushed meal before a journey. It's an opportunity to, to, to grab some food all the time listening out for God's command. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate, for the generations to come shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. This was, this was a milestone. This was a, a changing point in the history of God's people. This was a point so significant that when Jesus gathered in that upper room in Jerusalem, they were being obedient to God's commands recorded here in Exodus chapter 12, celebrating the Passover feast together. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day remove the yeast from your houses. Don't even have any yeast there. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day until the seventh must be cut off from Israel. The slightest act of disobedience and you'll be cut off from my people. Take the yeast out so that you can't even accidentally consume some. There will be no excuses. Hold a sacred assembly and do another one on the seventh seventh day. Do not work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Rest and eat because something big is about to happen. God is preparing his people. Can you imagine the sense of excitement, the sense of anticipation? Be ready. Eat. Rest. Prepare yourself. Be ready any second to go. And then he gives his instruction to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He says for generations to come, celebrate this feast, celebrate this day, because this is going to be a day worth celebrating. You can almost imagine the Israelites thinking, it doesn't sound like much of a celebration. I've got to paint my house with sheep's blood and... Most of the people in this country are going to wake up to find their firstborn child dead. That's nothing to celebrate. See, we can read this story through the lens of history and we can see God's goodness. But at the time, this must have been incredibly unnerving for the Israelites. Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in a basin and put some of the blood on the top and both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. 
Moses says, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. Pass this story down. Remember this command. Obey. Be obedient to God. Because God is about to set us free. And in verse 29 we read, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all of his officials and and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. What a moment that must have been. It's difficult for us to read about such things sometimes. But let's not forget the key ingredient in this chapter is obedience. There wasn't a question from Moses when he received his instruction from God. He recognised it, he heard God And he was obedient. Now sometimes it's difficult to know what God's telling us to do. Sometimes we can have a a feeling, have a stirring, have a thought, have a dream, have a vision, and then think, is that really from God? We're surrounded by cynicism in this world. We're surrounded by people who, who dismiss such things as, as fancy, as childlike, wishful thinking. But we need to maintain our obedience, our discipline in the eyes of God. When we feel a, a, a spiritual stirring, when we, when we have a dream or a vision, we must capture it, we must hold it, we must dwell on it. We must ask God what it is that he's saying to us and then we must... We must Hold it close. Proverbs 16.7 says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. When we look at the, the Exodus and we see, we see the, the journey of Moses, the development of the character of Moses, we see someone who, who's, whose ways are pleasing to the Lord. Why? Because he showed such obedience to God. He was absolutely obedient to God. And so when God gives him the instruction to tell the Israelites to ask the Egyptians for gold and silver, this bizarre instruction, they give it willingly. Because, chapter 11, verse 3, the Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. These were slaves. These were slaves who were brutally treated. We know that because we read about the the slave being beaten by the slave master when Moses, Moses kills the Egyptian because he sees this act of brutality. We know that this wasn't, a, wasn't an easy ride. Yes, they had food and they had homes, but they were oppressed. They weren't allowed to leave. They didn't have freedom. But for 400 years, the Israelites must have conducted themselves in a way that gained the respect of the Egyptians. 
as Moses showed obedience to God. As Moses went to Pharaoh time and time again and says, set my people free or God's going to send a plague. And Pharaoh says, get out, I'm not doing that, no. And then the plague comes. When that's happened time and time again, eventually eventually the Egyptian rulers, the officials in the court, must have seen Moses coming and thought, oh no, here we go again. Oh no, what's he going to say this time? What's his God told him is going to happen? Because I know it's going to happen now. I know it's going to happen. Oh no, boils, really? Oh, oh, Pharaoh, oh no, he's, no, I can't tell him. I can't stand up to him, this, this dictator who won't, who won't take no for an answer. This dictator is refusing to set the Israelites free. This dictator who's, who's blind to, to God's will. Oh no, boils, great. So, when eventually the Israelites asked for gold and silver, we read, the Lord had made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people and they gave them what they asked for. So the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. They didn't just say, oh, excuse me, you couldn't lend me a couple of quid, could you? Don't like to ask, but times are hard. They plundered. They, they took the, the wealth and the riches this gold and this silver. Some, some scholars say that eventually this was used to, to build the tabernacle. It was used for crafting the ark and everything that went with it. This is the result of God's people remaining faithful for 400 years of slavery. So the message this morning really is, is what is God calling us to do? How can we be obedient to God? Let's not lose sight of the fact that God does demand, command us to be obedient. He wants us to follow him, to be obedient. And we can look at, we can look at scripture, we can look at the call of Levi. Jesus says, follow me. And we're told he got up and followed him. When, the, when Luke records the calling of the first disciples, Peter, James and John. Jesus says, follow, and they follow. It sounds simple, doesn't it, to be obedient? And actually, in in many ways it is. In many ways it is. Sometimes it's almost a bit too simple to be obedient. This week, probably my highlight of the whole week was on um, Wednesday early, early evening, um, there's a member of our youth group who um, contacted Gary the week before and said, look, I've got some friends who I've spoken to them about my church group and they've got loads and loads of questions. And I've said to them, look, I, I haven't got the answers, but come along to church. I, I can set up a meeting with my youth leaders. Ask them the questions. They'll be able to give better answers. And so on Wednesday evening, this guy turned up and he had six friends with him. And they all come, came marching into the youth room and sat down and some of them baseball caps and hoodies and, you know, it looks like the sort of thing you see on Crime Watch. But they were a lovely group of lads. They were really nice. And we said, so what are you doing here? And one of them said, well, we've got, we've got friends who are suffering with um, mental health and pressures and depression. Some of them have got family breakups. Some of them are, uh, are going through really difficult times in life. And... And we don't know, we, we find that difficult 
we don't know who to talk to about that. And we were speaking to this person from our youth group and he said, he spoke about his church. And he said actually his church are the people that he can speak to about that, the people that can advise and support and help. And so we said, well, we'd like some of that. So that's what we're doing here. And for an hour and a half, we had questions about creation, about judgment day, about sin, about suffering, about healing, about miracles. It all came gushing out. It was amazing. It was brilliant. These six guys who never set foot in a church normally. One of them said, I didn't tell my mum and dad I was coming here because I didn't know what they'd say. They came into a church and they were asking. We had the opportunity to share the gospel and to speak about God and it was just such a privilege. But at the end of it, one of them said, right, that's, that's great, but what, 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 can, what, can I, what can I do? You've, you've talked about this, this stuff, sin, right? All the bad stuff that we do. What can I do? Basically, what he was saying was, how can I be obedient? How can I show God that I'd like to be obedient? I'd like to do something about this. And we said, well, let's, let's pray. And so we prayed for them and um, it was a prayer of repentance and it was a prayer asking God to come into their lives and to help them. And we said, if you, if you, if you want that, then at the end of it, just say Amen. They said, is that it? They said, yeah. That's not, that's not it as in completion. That is the, that's the end of the first step. The first step. You see, so, for so many people, we want to go through the kind of the Moses-like story. We want to have the confrontation with Pharaoh and we want to see the plagues and we want to see the Passover and we want to have the journey and the, the, the sea parting and see the armies crushed. We want that. But it doesn't happen like that. Because all the work's been done. All the toil and the pain and the travelling and that's all been done. And that was done on the cross. That was done when Jesus allowed himself to be arrested, tried, tortured and crucified. All the work was done right there. And then he rose again, demonstrating beyond doubt that he was the Son of God, the risen Lord. And so when someone says now, is that it? We can say, yeah. Yeah. It gets even easier. I want to just finish today with a reminder. Shortly before... Jesus was arrested when he was in that upper room celebrating a Passover meal giving thanks to God with his disciples. He said, this is my command. Love each other. Whatever we face this week, this month, this year, whatever challenge we find, it, find before us, whatever struggles we have trying to work out what God's calling us to do, let's start in John chapter 15, verse 17. Let's remember the, the, the hardships that have gone before, the work that was done by, by Moses and by the Israelites, the work that was done at the cross, but let's remember Jesus, the Son of God, said this is my command. Love each other.
If we can be obedient to nothing else, let's be obedient to that. Love each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you, Lord, that we can, we can dip into it time after time after time, day after day after day, and even if we simply intend to scratch the surface, we find ourselves dragged down into the depths, the depths contained in these pages. Thank you, Lord, that we can read a familiar story and suddenly be struck by new perspectives, by new words, by new, new things that we hadn't spotted before. But Father, help us also to remember that the work is done, that you sent your Son onto this earth to call people to follow him. And Father, we, we do follow you. We yearn to follow you. We yearn to, to live lives that please you, that are obedient to you. Even when we find ourselves faced with, with a pharaoh, whether it's a, 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 a boss of our company or whether it's, whether it's a family member or a friend who, whose cynicism and mockery really winds us up or whether it's someone we're scared of or whatever it happens to be, Father, when we're in their presence, Lord, we pray that we will remember that the work has been done. And Father, help us in every conversation that we have, in every situation we find ourselves in, even when people do us wrong, when we get hurt, when we get upset. Help us to remember to love one another. And when we've said things that have hurt people, help us to remember to love one another. Father, that's the mark of your people. Love. So, Father, this morning we, we repent of the times when we haven't shown that. And we pray that you will help us, imperfect as we are, to practice that command as often as we can in every walk of life to show love. Because we know that by showing love, we're showing you. In Jesus' name, Amen.